We'll continue our way through the book of Nehemiah. We're going to do two chapters today just because Nehemiah chapter 7, uh, we're not even going to take time to read it. It's a long chapter, but uh, in reality, we've already kind of covered Nehemiah chapter 7. And I'll show you why here in a little bit, but just a little bit of review before we get into this. Remember, Israel is working on the wall and they are succeeding. They're getting all the breaches filled in and their enemies are very upset by this. And so they stayed focused. They weren't falling for their tricks. They weren't getting distracted and they just kept on doing the work and the temples rebuilt. The walls are now rebuilt. Uh, the priests are back, but they're, um, they're residence has not been taken care of yet there's still more work that needs to be done they're making progress so everything is moving forward and so it says in verse one now it came to pass when the wall was built and i had set up the doors and the porters and the singers and the levites were appointed that i gave my brother hanai and hananiah the ruler of the palace charge over jerusalem for he was a faithful man and feared god above many and i said unto them let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun be hot. And while they stand by, let them shut the doors and bar them and appoint watches of the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Everyone is watch and everyone to be over against his house. Now the city was large and great, but the people were few therein and the houses were not builded. So while the temple and the walls are built, understand in Ezra, we saw how Ezra the scribe came back and he was the one that was starting to prepare the priests. He was the one instructing the priests and getting them ready. And we just forget how Jerusalem had been destroyed. And unfortunately, you know, in, uh, you know, while we have the common stories everyone knows, everybody knows, you know, Daniel and the lion's den and David and Goliath and the children of Israel, you know, coming out of Egypt. We all know those stories. But the stories that I think is conveniently left out of most churches is the restoration to Jerusalem. Because I think the reason for that is because we're not supposed to know that this was already, you know, that this prophecy has already been fulfilled. What we are seeing here, I can't emphasize enough, is a fulfillment of many major prophecies from Isaiah, from Jeremiah, from Ezekiel, from Zechariah, and that most people today completely ignore the context of Ezra and Nehemiah and they don't understand that this is the fulfillment of this restoration that's taken place. And so uh, it is. It's hard for us to put our minds, uh, you know, in this time. We've all seen movies like the Ten Commandments that's kind of helped us uh, people have an image in their mind of what things were like. But we've never seen movies on this. And there's not much preaching on this. And so this is, this is a huge part of their history. We've got two books of the Bible kind of dedicated just to the historical part of what took place when they were restored to the land. And so we can't emphasize this enough. And so the part of uh, what they had in these walls surrounding the temple were dwelling places where the priests lived. And um, that is, you know, there's a lot of historical stuff about that, but the priests and the Levites, they did. They lived within the walls of the house of God. So that house of God, you had the temple that was considered the house of God. But even like these outer court areas were all kind of considered part of the house of God. And so sometimes when you see them going up into the house of God, it didn't mean necessarily they went inside the holy place, inside the temple, but even just that whole area was all considered the house of God. And many, many Levites, in fact, if you go through here, I mean, we see there were thousands of Levites. The 
the work of the priest was a really big thing. There was a lot of animals to take care of. We mainly focus on the high priest who would go into the temple and do his thing. But there were all kinds of offerings that had to be done. There were all kinds of things that all the families were supposed to be doing. And so they had many, many, many Levites who would help uh, perform all these functions. And so it was a really big deal. And so uh, the Levites, because all of that stuff had been destroyed, they had been working just like everyone else to survive. Farming, you know, and having houses. But now it's time for them to forsake all that. And even though for probably over 80 years that has been being done, it's time to go back to living amongst the temple and doing the things of God. And so I point all that out too because something that people bring up a lot, okay? The Jehovah's Witnesses like to bring this up a lot where they will actually state some true facts and then jump to false conclusions with it. But uh, turn over to John chapter 14 and verse 1. John chapter 14 and verse 1. We're going to chase a little rabbit here just uh, just for fun. But it says, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And something people like to debate about and like to bring up just to kind of, I think, be divisive is uh, what does that mean when it says a mansion? Okay, What do you all picture when you picture a mansion in your mind? Okay, We all picture a really huge house, don't we? Right. And that's what we all hope for. You know, and there's the famous song. I've got a mansion just over the hilltop that was written during the Depression era when things were really tough. And this guy is singing songs about, you know, having a mansion someday in heaven. You know, I might be poor here on this earth, but I'm going to live in a mansion in heaven someday. And so then you always have people that want to come along and kind of rain on everyone's parade and be like, you know, we shouldn't be looking forward to mansions. We should just be looking forward to seeing Jesus. You know, and in reality, it doesn't really mean mansion like we picture today. It just means a room. And that's what other versions say. You know, in my father's house are many rooms is one of the things that we'll say. But here's the thing about that word mansion. If we look at the 1828 dictionary, the definition is any place of residence, a house, a habitation. And so when he when he's saying in my father's house are many mansions, I do think he's making a reference here too. I think it's accurate when people talk about, you know, in his father's house, in their mind, they're picturing the house of God that did have many dwelling places within the walls that the priests and Levites lived in. And I think when Jesus said this too, he was making, he was making a point because he said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am there, he may be also. And I think too, kind of part of the reference for that is the fact that He's uh, in this story, he's also uh, in John 14, he's talking about the vine and the branches. He's talking about bearing fruit. And I think he was referring to him going to the cross and making a way for us to be able to be ministers of the things of God so we can bear fruit. We are able to bear fruit. We are able to be ministers of God because of what Jesus Christ did in the cross. And so, um, you know, when it talks about mansions all right whether it's a big house or just a room in heaven you know what? either way i'm fine i think we'll be thrilled with whatever god gives us i think it's a dumb thing to be argumentative about personally but either way i do think that um when jesus said that he was showing how the you know these lowly fishermen that they were going to have a place 
in the house of God. And there's also, I believe, too, I, I didn't want to spend a lot of time on this, but um, if, you, if we go back to Isaiah, there are prophecies about God basically making a way for those who at one time would have been kept out of those things that God was going to make a place for them. And I think personally what he's saying here is he is going to make a way for us to be able to serve in his kingdom, to be a part of his house. And, and we are. We are today, the Bible says, a kingdom of priests. Are we not? And we are. We believe in the priesthood of believers as Baptists. And so I just show you all that to show it is a true thing that those priests, they lived within the house of God. They lived in the walls. They had many uh, uh, dwelling places there. And so that's the next thing they're getting ready to do here in Nehemiah. They're getting ready to prepare those places for the priests or for the Levites to dwell in. So look what it says in verse 5. It says, And my God put into mine heart to gather together the nobles and the rulers and the people that they might be reckoned by genealogy. And I found a register of the genealogy of them, which came up at the first and found written therein. These are the children of the province, which went up out of the captivity of those that had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away and came again to Jerusalem and to Judah, every one into his city, who came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Ramaiah, Nehemiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispereth, Bigvi, Nahum, Banani, the number I say of the men of the people of Israel was this. Now, we're not going to take time to read all those names because if you look, there's a whole bunch. But under, um, we actually went through this in Ezra 2. Ezra 2 is what they're referring to. Ezra 2 shows the genealogies of the people who came out of uh, Babylon. And, and so that's what uh, Nehemiah 7 here is referring to. So it goes back. And it gives all the same details that it did in in Ezra chapter 2. But I do want to point out verse 63. Because this is a good... uh, Verses 63 through 65 is a good verse to have underlined. So you can take it to the dispensationalist. I had a guy that just this week, I asked him what the modern day Jews connection is to the nation of Israel. And he said, genetics. That's what he said. Genetics, okay? Now, you can't show that biblically, but even if you could, okay, first off, okay, you know, it's foolish because Christ fulfilled all those things and completed all that. But either way, if we were in this Old Testament economy mindset like they still are, understand you have to be able to prove it. And so this is a good verse to have underlined where it says in verse 63, and of the priest and of the children of Habaiah, the children of Kaz, the children of Barzillai, which took one of the daughters of Barzillai the Gileadite to wife, was called after their name. These sought their register among those that were reckoned by genealogy, but it was not found. Therefore, were they as polluted put from the priesthood. And the, uh, and the Tershatha said unto them, that they should not eat of the most holy things till there stood up a priest with Urim and Thummim. So right there we see that there was a group in there that came back with them that couldn't prove their genealogy and so you know what they got put out there was no place for them so whenever they are and so think about this when they were preparing a place for the levites in the house of god that's what we see here in nehemiah chapter 7 there were some within there that could not prove their lineage and they were put out they were considered polluted 
So when Jesus said, in my father's house are many mansions, if it weren't so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. You know what he was doing? He was making a way by him removing those carnal ordinances that were against us, nailing them to his cross, making it so we could have a place in his father's house. So we could have a place in his kingdom. And he did that, not just for us, he did that for all of Israel because Israel, most of the children of Israel were not like these purebred Jews. You did have your Pharisees, uh, you know, that were like the apostle Paul, you know, of the tribe of Benjamin. You know, he was somebody who was probably more of a, a pureblood uh, Jew. But at the same time, too, those people still weren't saved because they were so lifted up with pride about all those things. Paul, thankfully, got, you know, he humbled himself. But this is what people don't understand. Jesus Christ removed all that stuff. So there is a place for us, even though we're not genetically Levites, even though we're not genetically Jews, Jesus Christ prepared a place for us and in his father's house are many mansions. And we are, we are able to have claim to the things of God, to the house of God, to the kingdom of God, to the service of God. We are all qualified to be a part of God's kingdom, to be fruit bearing branches, to be servants in his kingdom because of what Jesus Christ did for us. He did all that for us. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't have to prove anything with my genealogies. And you know what? Even if somebody today comes, and, and they can't, okay? But even if somebody today could come along and say, look, I've proven I am a pure, pure blood Levite. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I am in a better place than they are because I'm saved. Because the blood of Christ has cleansed me. So I would, I would underline that verse for people who want to make a big deal about people claiming to be of Israel who can't prove it genetically. And that's going all the way back to Abraham. They can't do it. And so also you can uh, underline Ezra 2, 61 through 63 because it says the exact same thing. Exact same thing. So you've got two different places. The Bible put it in there twice. So it's probably important. So I, I, I would recommend marking those. But let's go ahead and go to chapter 8. Because so, chapter 8 or 7... Is pretty much just the genealogies. We already went through that in Ezra chapter 2. So uh, chapter 8 verse 1 says, And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from the morning until the midday before the men and the women and those that could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. And remember in the book of Ezra, how he was in charge of preparing the priests by instructing them from the law on how to do their job because it's now been over 80 years since they've done these things. Okay, and let's look at this next verse too, because this is where we can get, we can find some proof text for camp meeting culture. Okay, let's let's see what's going on right here. And so, verse four. Okay, this is a Baptist distinctive right here. And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood. Amen. What's this made out of up here? This ain't no plexiglass pulpit up here. This ain't no bistro table. Ain't no lectern. Stood on a pulpit of wood. Hey, man. No. Um, we're, we're, I'm, I'm joking a little bit. But he stood upon a pulpit of wood, which they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah and Shema and Ananiah 
and Uriah and Hilkiah, Messiah, on his right hand and on his left hand, Pediah, Mishael, Malchim, Hashem, and Hashem, uh, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam. And Ezra, the, and so notice, notice how I had the men of God up on the pulpit with him. That's what they do at camp meetings, right? They always have the men of God standing behind them on the pulpit. That's what Ezra did. Now, understand, okay, I'm not saying you can't do that, okay? I'm not saying you can't do that, but understand what's going on here. When Ezra, this scribe of God, who is in charge of the Word of God, remember, when we went through the book of Ezra, we showed how the reality is, while a lot of big things were happening during that time, physically with the rebuilding of the temple and all that, the most important thing that happened was when Ezra showed up with the Scriptures, with the Word of God. Who cares if they have a building if they're not following the Word of God? It's not going to matter. That was the most important thing. Who cares if they have Levites if the Levites aren't doing the Word of God? So Ezra, his job was really important here. Ezra was somebody in leadership and in authority, and he does. He has other leadership and authority standing up there with him as he gets up and he reads the Word of God. And this is, this is showing, one, we're not just reading the Bible right here, but the leadership, we stand with the Word of God. We stand with what is about to be spoken. Everyone who is listening, you better follow it. Those who are up here on this pulpit of wood. Okay, so in reality, the pulpit of wood would be like the whole stage, not just the part where we set our Bible, I guess. But anyway, you know, that all those who are standing up here, who are going to enforce these laws, Ezra, they were, they were kind of the law enforcement that's going on, the scribes. You know, we, this is exactly what we are going to hold you all to. We expect you all to do this because while you are the Levites, while you are the ones that God gave the priesthood to, understand you're not above the Word of God. You better follow what the Word of God says. And let me just remind everybody here too that while I believe in authority in the church, no one is above the Word of God and all of you have a responsibility to pay attention to what the Word of God says, to know what the Word of God says, and to hold leadership accountable. And if, they, and if leadership starts veering off from the Word of God and teaching false doctrine, somebody needs to do something about it. Somebody, somebody needs to say something. It's okay for you to do that. And so, uh, let's go to verse 4, or verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And many people have that practice of standing up during the Scripture reading. Nothing wrong with that. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen. Notice they have Amen's going on right there. More proof of camp meeting culture. And lifting up their hands. Hey, nothing wrong with showing a little something when the Word of God's being preached. Amen. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And let me, it is okay to pattern things after examples like this, but here's where we can get in, we can go into error. I don't think it's wrong when any of this stuff happens in church. I think, you know, but at the same time, we need to be careful about getting real dogmatic on it because this here is still a very unique situation that is not identical to what we do on a regular basis. This was a very special moment. In fact, you know, it's, it was quite different than many things than what, than what we do in many ways. So, you know, here, here's the problem that we're having in the Baptist world, and I talk about this a lot. While there is a time and a place for certain things, 
You know, and while there have been times in history and in the Bible where people, uh, you know, under the influence of the Holy Ghost did things a certain way, often we will take those things that they did and we make it like magic spells to conjure up the Holy Ghost. And it's like we have to go do all of these things in, the, in an identical manner. And if we do that, then the Holy Ghost will do what he did during that day. And it's just like, well, you know, maybe they did what they did on that day because that's what the Holy Spirit led them to do. You know, they, they were following the lead of the Holy Spirit and all of a sudden this is what they did. You are hoping if you do this and this and this, then you'll get the Holy Spirit to do what you want them to do. Do you see how that's backwards? That's kind of what's happening today is we will watch what the Holy Spirit got the people to do and we'll take those things and say, let's go do all those things and then the Holy Spirit will do whatever. It's like our way of controlling the Holy Spirit. That's not what we're supposed to do. If the Holy Spirit leads us to do something a certain way, you better believe we ought to do it. But at the end of the day, the Holy Spirit's supposed to lead, not us. Okay? Not us. And it's, it's interesting just the way people sometimes can professionally conjure up some things. And I, I, I came across a video yesterday. I, sh- I had to show it to my wife. First off, there's a parody video out there making fun of Baptists that's hilarious. Okay. I'll have to show it to you after church. But, um, I, I, I listen to it all the time just because it cracks me up. And I, and I went, I, I, I played this parody thing for my wife. This was made from years ago. I said, now listen to this. We went to this one part and then I showed her something that was just recently uploaded in a Baptist church, like from last, this week, that was like identical to what this person was making fun of. And it was so obvious what was going on. I mean, these people were literally trying to conjure up the Holy Ghost. And it, and it, and it worked in their minds. <laughs> you know, it, it, it got everybody emotional. It got everybody excited. But I, I personally thought it was pretty repulsive what was going on because, uh, one of the reasons too, I don't believe in women preachers. Okay. I don't, I don't believe in women preachers. And let me tell you something. It's still woman preaching. I think it's fine for a lady to sing a special in church, and that's what she was getting ready to do. But when they start testifying beforehand and preaching a sermon, it's still preaching a sermon. And that's exactly what happened in this church. They would never let a woman preach, if you ask them. But they let a woman preach in that service, and she got more haymens than most men when they preached. But anyway, we we got to watch out. So again, I've seen people too, they'll take a passage like this, and they will. It's like, all right, let's go do all of these things just like that. And then we'll get a move of the Holy Ghost. You know, we don't try to conjure up the Holy Ghost. We try to follow the leading of the Holy Ghost is what we do. So verse 7, also Jeshua and Bani and Sherebiah and Jamin and Akab and there's a lot of tough names in here. Shabbatai, Hodijah, Messiah, Kalida, Azariah, Jozebad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites caused the people to understand the law and the people stood in their place. Notice they caused them to understand the law. They didn't just read what was stated there. You know, they explained it to them. They're giving them instructions. It's okay to do that when you're preaching. And it says, so they read in the book in the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. Now, think about this. For hundreds of years, hundreds, I forgot how many, hundreds and hundreds of years, 
The Levites had been practicing all these things. All of this was second nature to them. It had been gone for almost two generations. So this new group of priests, they know nothing about these things, which would have been almost impossible for Israel to fathom before they went into that Babylonian captivity. And that's one of the things we see in the book of Jeremiah. People were not believing Jeremiah when he was prophesying of all these things, when he was talking about all these things that were going to happen. Israel and Jerusalem had been in operation for so long. They had so many amazing buildings and things that they were very proud of. They could not imagine that city being gone. They couldn't imagine the temple being gone, the priesthood going away and being forgotten. They couldn't imagine any of that. But sure enough, just like the prophet said, it happened. But also just like the prophet said, in a miraculous way, God, sure enough, restored them to that land, brought them back, preserved his word. And even though we've got a generation that does not know how to do the things of the, of the priesthood, because God preserved the word, there was a, men like Ezra were able to instruct these people so they could bring these things back. And that's exactly, that's exactly what they did, even though they still never did a very good job of it. They, this, this new generation that comes along, when we look at Malachi, they clearly were not following things like they should have. I think their, I think their heart was in the right place in the beginning, but they ultimately, they failed pretty bad. And so, um, verse nine says, and Nehemiah, which is the Tershatha and Ezra, the priest, the scribe and the Levites that taught the people said unto the people the this day is holy unto the Lord, your God, more not nor weep for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. And this is good. We ought to have reverence for the word of God. And I imagine too, there was probably a lot of conviction there because it's like, man, we haven't done this in 80 years. We are Levites and we don't know these things. And they did, they wept. But you know what? Ezra told them, this isn't time to weep. You know what? This is a good day. God has brought us back to the land. Yeah, we messed up. But this is a time of revival. And so let's, let's be happy. And so then he said unto them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet, and send portion unto them for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto, the Lord, unto uh, our Lord. Neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites stilled all the people, saying, Hold your peace, for the day is holy. Neither be ye grieved, and all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make great mirth because they had understood the words that were declared unto them. And I love how he says, hey, don't weep. This day is holy to the Lord. So you know what he said you ought to do? You ought to celebrate. And you know what? Watch out for the preachers that act like when a person gets saved, they've just got to be grieved and sobbing and crying. You know, why can't we be happy? Why can't be? Listen, if... You know, you get moved to tears and are just thankful, you know, but it ought to be a happy cry, not a just cry of guilt and shame. It ought, you know, you understand the joy of the Lord is your strength. The, this day is holy. You are now holy because of what Jesus Christ did for you. We don't need to mourn. We don't need to weep. You don't need to do penance. Jesus did everything that needed to be done for your salvation on the cross. You know what you ought to do? You ought to, you ought to celebrate. You ought to be happy. You ought to have joy. I personally think that's a better response to salvation. And that's what the priest needed right here. He wanted them to be happy. God was about to do great things. He wants them to be joyful. 
And on the second day were gathered together the chief of the fathers and of all the people, the priests and the Levites, unto Ezra the scribe, even to understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths in the feast of the seventh month. This here is a reference to the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay? Now, um, well, yeah, go ahead and, and turn over to Leviticus 23. We'll go there in a minute. Let me go ahead and read uh, the rest of this. Because the Feast of Tabernacles is an interesting feast. And honestly, when it comes to certain prophetic things about it, I don't have a strong position on it, but I'll, I'll give you uh, a couple of opinions about it. But verse 15 says, and that they should publish and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go forth unto the mount and fetch olive branches and pine branches and myrtle branches and palm branches and branches of thick trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went forth and brought them and, and made themselves booths, every one upon the roof of his house, into their courts, and into the courts of the house of God, and in the street of the water gate, and in the street of the gates of Ephraim. And all the congregation of them that were come again out of the captivity made booths, and said unto the booths, For since the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, unto that day had not the children of Israel done so, and there was very great gladness also day by day. From the first day unto the last day, he read in the book of the law of God, and they kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day was a solemn assembly according to the manner. Now, I don't know if you realize what he just said there. First off, the Feast of Tabernacles, this was commanded in Leviticus 23. This was commanded by God. It was given to Moses that they were to keep this Feast of Tabernacles. They only ever did it during the days of Joshua. This was supposed to be a yearly thing that they did. And they literally never did it after the time of Joshua. They, they never did it. Now, now, keep all that in mind. And the Feast of Tabernacles, too, is one that a lot of Hebrew Roots people try to pretend they're keeping today, and it angers me greatly. We were in Branson one year during the Feast of Tabernacles, and there was a bunch of weirdo Christians out there keeping the Feast of Tabernacles, dwelling in hotels. That is not a tabernacle. Okay? It, the, just, boy, these, these shortcut Jewish things that people are doing to pander to the Jews and stuff, it absolutely makes me want to vomit. And I've and and told this story before, how I, I was standing in the lobby and I heard a couple guys talking about it and the guy's like, yeah, I've been trying to get the Baptists to start doing this, but you know those Baptists, they don't change on anything. I'm just like, amen. I was like, you know, and, and actually we do change on some things. God put a change to those things of the feast and of the holy days. And so, yeah, we changed with Jesus Christ. On that, and yeah, we and so we don't do that anymore. And you know what? We're not going to let you judge us in it either, just like Paul commanded. But anyway, I almost invited myself into that conversation. I, I, I almost, I almost did that. Probably should have. I probably should have. But Leviticus twenty-three, thirty-three, says, "And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month shall be the feast of tabernacles." For seven days in the Lord. And the Feast of Tabernacles or Feast of Booths, it's the same thing. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. Ye shall do no servile work therein. Seven days shall ye offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. On the eighth day shall be a, a holy convocation unto you. And ye shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. It is a solemn assembly, and ye shall do no servile work therein. These are the feasts of the Lord, 
which ye shall proclaim to be a holy convocations to offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord, a burnt offering and a meat offering and a sacrifice and drink offerings, everything upon this day, beside the Sabbaths of the Lord, beside your gifts and beside all your vows and beside all your free will offerings, which ye give unto the Lord. Also in the 15th day of the seventh month, when ye have gathered in the fruit of the land, ye shall keep a feast of the Lord seven days and the first day shall be a Sabbath on the eighth day shall be a Sabbath. And ye shall take you on the first day the boughs of goodly trees, branches of palm trees, and, and boughs of thick trees, and the willows of the brook, and ye shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. We saw them doing that in Nehemiah. And ye shall keep it a feast unto the Lord seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. Ye shall celebrate it in the seventh month. Ye shall dwell in booths seven days. All the, the, that are Israelites born shall dwell in booths. Why? Okay, so why did they do this? This is what's important to understand. That your generations may know that I made the children of Israel to dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And Moses declared unto the children of Israel the feast of the Lord. So this feast of tabernacles or feast of booths, it was something that they were to do as a reminder of their time in the wilderness for 40 years after God brought them out of Egypt they did they had to dwell in tabernacles they dwelt in tents like their father Abraham Isaac and Jacob that were sojourners they dwelt in tents and so whenever God restored them to the land and they all built houses it was very important that they remembered what God did for them and so it was it was a good thing it made sense if every year we have a time where we got to go and live in a tent for seven days you know what it would do? It would make them appreciate what God had done for them. Hey, this is what our fathers had to do for 40 years because of their unbelief. You know what? It'd be a reminder every year, we should serve God. You know, we should be, I think this, I mean, this practice, it, it was a great thing. It made a lot of sense. But you know what? This was another thing Israel didn't obey. They did it during the days of Joshua. During the days of Joshua, they were doing things right. And God blessed that generation in a great way. But after the time of Joshua, they got away from that. They weren't doing it anymore. And so this Feast of Tabernacles being followed here was a really, really big deal. Now, turn over to Zechariah. Turn over to Zechariah chapter 14. I'm going to close with this. Because again, um, a lot of people they read the Old Testament as if it's in chronological order. And that's why they miss the restoration of Israel to the land. And so they, they read all those prophecies, you know, you know, after Ezra and Nehemiah, and they don't realize Ezra and Nehemiah is the fulfillment of all of these prophecies. Now, in books like Zechariah, we're not going to take time to go through it. These things were, they weren't just telling them what's going to happen these were also, there were also instructions in these, in these prophecies as well. And in Zechariah, we definitely have things that I do not believe have been fulfilled. There are definitely future things that are referenced here uh, in Zechariah. But it, um, and so because of that, everyone reads this chapter and thinks, everything in here is future and has to take place. But look what it says in verse 16, it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. 
And it shall be that whoso will not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. And if the family of Egypt go not up and come not up, that have no rain, there shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite the heathen that come not up to thee to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacle. In that day uh, shall there be upon the bells of the horses holiness unto the Lord, and the pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yea, every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah shall be holiness unto the Lord of hosts, and all they that sacrifice shall come and take of them and see therein, and in that day, there shall be no more Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. So, here's the, here's the big question. What, you know, is not will this prophecy be fulfilled. The question is, how will it be fulfilled? It's going to be fulfilled. You know, so the thing is, were there no saved Canaanites? Are there going to be no Canaanites in the millennium? Okay, understand again, this is an old covenant prophecy that will find a fulfillment under the new covenant that has new and better promises. And I'm to, I personally believe that Canaanites will be able to go into the house of the Lord. The reason for that is because all the things of the law that were against them, Jesus Christ took those things out of the way when he died on the cross. So again, you say, well then, he, they're cleansed, therefore they're not a Canaanite. Well, okay, fine. They were a Canaanite, but that's how it's you know the fulfillment again, is through Christ. And so the question is too, when, with the new and better promises, will there be the Feast of Tabernacles? Will that feast come back during that time? You know, I don't know for sure. I don't know for sure if the Feast of Tabernacles has to come back. I think at the same time too, it's possible that it will because in, here's an interesting thing about it. One of the reasons they were supposed to keep that Feast of Tabernacles is to remind them of their time they were in the wilderness, time when they were strangers and pilgrims. Well, what does the Bible say we are today as Christians? We're strangers and pilgrims on earth. So it would be kind of foolish for us to keep, it is foolish for us to keep the Feast of Tabernacles today, seeing that we are strangers and pilgrims right now. But it is possible that in the millennium that we will keep a Feast of Tabernacles as a reminder to us of how, of the time when we were strangers and pilgrims. You know, before we inherited the earth. And so it's possible we will keep a form of that. I do not believe there will be any sacrifices when we keep it. I don't believe in that at all. And uh, nor do I think uh, it will be necessary to um, do things in Jerusalem and stuff like that. It's possible we might. I don't know for sure. One can only speculate on all that. But, but either, way, either way you look at it, uh, I do think one of the things we're seeing in Zechariah it is, it's instructions. And so in Nehemiah, when they're keeping the Feast of Tabernacles, I do believe what was going on there was kind of supposed to be the beginning of the fulfillment of that prophecy. But again, Israel never did what they were supposed to do. And so what do we see? What's the theme we're seeing as we go through the book of Matthew? Jesus is coming along and he's fulfilling everything. Because all we ever see in the Old Testament with Israel are partial fulfillments. If you even want to use that word fulfillment. We see failure. We, but I do believe God was presenting opportunities for these things. But they were always failing. And so Christ fulfilled these things. And so I believe even the Feast of Tabernacle stuff, these things will be fulfilled through Christ. 
how it all works technically, not 100% sure on that, but I do think it's, you can kind of go into error when you get overly dogmatic about how you think it's going to play out. The new covenant comes with new and better promises. It doesn't mean these things won't be fulfilled. It just means they'll be fulfilled in a better way. So it might look a little different than what you're thinking. So anyway, with that, let's go ahead and close the word of prayer. Dear Lord, thank you so much for these chapters and the, and the lessons we can learn from them. And Lord, I just pray that you'll uh, help us as uh, right now, while we're strangers and pilgrims on this earth, to uh, think more about the future and heavenly things than we do about the things of this earth. And pray a bless everyone for it. Pray a bless the service the next hour. In your name we pray. Amen.